We have one remaining with the individual, and he's not going to let her leave the aircraft at this time. He made me feel very sure that uh, we had a very real and horrifying threat. We don't know who he was, where he came from, or where he went. Let me start off tonight just by saying if anybody has any questions to just go ahead and ask them. Uh, Steve McQueen was D.B. Cooper. Steve McQueen would have made a very cool D.B. Cooper. Um, if there had been a movie, if he had still been alive, he had been a good D.B. Cooper. They could have just put some black hair, you know, give him some uh, hair dye, and he'd have, he, I think he'd have been rocking and rolling. Steve McQueen would have been a great uh, D.B. Cooper. You know who would be a really good D.B. Cooper? I've had somebody ask me that question recently about who would be a good actor to play D.B. Cooper. And I thought about it, and if any of you have watched uh, the show Succession, the oldest sibling, his name is uh, the, the, the actor's name is Jeremy Strong. He would be a phenomenal D.B. Cooper. He has, has the look. He has kind of the olive skin. That's kind of a pouty little lower lip. Uh, he'd, be, he'd be fantastic. He has a kind of a thin, narrow face. He has what you want. Somebody mentioned uh, another person, Kevin Spacey. Now, he's, he's a little older now, but, and he's a little controversial now, but maybe back during his American Beauty days, uh, Kevin Spacey would have, been a really good, uh, would have been a really good one. Okay, so... Uh, do you think that there's anyone out there that knows who the real D.B. Cooper is? So here, here's, the, here's my belief in, like, my template for who D.B. Cooper was or for what he was. I really feel like that, I mean, a lot of people like to discuss that he was Special Forces, possibly. Uh, the Boeing engineer who has the pink slip in hand, you know, or the metallurgist guy who has the Verdal or Peterson, you know, people like that who have the pink slip in hand or these other people. But I have to tell you, folks, I really, after studying these skyjackers for a while now and really remember, folks, there were 130, I think, skyjackings between 1968 and 72. So we have a pretty good sample size of who these people were. That fact always just blows people, people's minds that there were 130 of these in America in a four-year period. That staggers the mind really to, to imagine that today. But it was kind of a fad. In fact, you had stewardesses who kept bathing suits in their carry-ons even in like November and December because, hey, we're, if we get hijacked, we're probably going to Cuba. You know, most of these skyjackers were Cuban expats who had grown up in America, but, you know, had their adolescent years in Cuba. And uh, they kind of, their families fled to America and they kind of got into this Castro's, I don't know, communist paradise sort of thing. So they all wanted to go back to Cuba. So 90% of your skyjackings in this era were people wanting to go to Cuba. Uh, in fact, it, you know, it became such a problem that they tried to, that the U.S. Congress actually allocated funds to create a fake Havana airport somewhere in Florida. So where they, they could land and just pretend that they were in Havana. And these skyjackers would just waltz off the plane and it was the FBI agents or whomever pretending to be Cubans would snatch these guys up. But this fake Havana airport was actually never built. But you know, people like to say that he was the Boeing guy or he was a special forces guy, and that's plausible for sure. But really, I just think Cooper was probably a, a guy that we would classify as a loser. You know, I think he had some knowledge. He was smarter than most people, but he's a guy who didn't have a lot of family. I think that he didn't have family who would miss him. Uh, so I think we're looking for a guy who, you know, basically you're, I hate to say it this way, but kind of your loser uncle type, you know, a guy who, the family's probably estranged from, never had a family, or if he had a family, he had a drinking problem and ran them off or ran a wife off. You know, a guy who was mid-40s, had no prospects, was just kind of a, a dope 
I think that's who he was, but I do think he was a pilot. I think he had a private pilot's license, perhaps had been a pilot in the war, in World War II, or maybe Korea, not Vietnam. I think he's too old to be Vietnam, but that's what I think. So as far as people knowing who D.B. Cooper was, I would say no. If somebody knew, maybe they're dead by now. I mean, this has been a long time, but I think that my belief is that Cooper probably lost the money in the jump. Uh, we have analogs for that. McNally lost his money in the jump. I don't trust D.B. Cooper's MacGyvering skills with the money bag to tie it to himself adequately to, to survive the, the chute opening and blasting it off of him. Um, I think that it's likely that he jury-rigged it the same way that McNally did, and uh, that's how he lost it. Our other guys were a bit better with securing the bags to their, to their harnesses. They had clips and things like that. So if you are D.B. Cooper and you survive but lose the money, is that really a story you're going to brag about to anybody? I don't think so. That's not really something you tell people that you failed. I mean, you got away. You didn't die. So I guess that's some success, but you failed in your endeavor. So I do think you probably lost the money. And I do think that it'd be embarrassing to tell people. So I don't think that anybody knows who D.B. Cooper is. Okay. Uh, do you think we can assume that Cooper survived the jump? I find it difficult to believe we haven't found some evidence of the body and the parachute by now. Okay. So I do think it's safe to assume that he survived the jump. I Let's think about this. Let's think about it this way. He would have had to have been a no pull to have, you know, or landed in water to have not survived his jump. Okay. So either he doesn't pull his parachute um, or he pulls his parachute and lands in water. Well, along the flight path where we believe he jumped, there's an area there. Um, I don't, there's not much water there. I mean, there's Lake Merwin, but Cooper jumps after he would have landed in Lake Merwin and he jumps before he would have landed in the Columbia River. So there's not really any bodies of water really for him to land into and drown and not be found. So I, I don't think he landed in the water. So really the only option for him dying is a no pull. And if you look at the statistics for skydivers, you know, no pulls. I, I wish I, I wish I had it in front of me, but it's something like, you know, I don't know, there are 20 million skydiving jumps in the past 20 years. And like there were seven no pulls. I mean, it's just as long as you pull your ripcord, it's probably going to open, especially the parachutes that he was equipped with, which were military emergency parachutes for crew members who were jumping out of bombers or whatever. Right. So these things are designed to open, even if you're spinning out of control. It's funny. We had this misconception about Cooper that over the years, the FBI liked to say that he picked the wrong shoot or he had a civilian shoot he could have picked or a skydiving rig and he chose this military parachute. Well, we now know that all of his parachutes were military rigs, both of them. And they were emergency parachutes. So he basically had very similar parachutes. And both of them were designed to open up, even if you're spinning out of control. So I do think it's safe to assume um, he'd survived. However, to the point about no body being found, I, I, will, I do counter with this. So in November of 72, the FBI did put out bulletins to hunters. Uh, they had these flyers that said all the hunters in Washington state to be look on the lookout for certain things, looking, looking for a body, looking for you know, a money bag, looking for briefcases, looking for all kinds of accoutrements that Cooper would have had. So during that, during that uh, time in November 72, they did find a body. Hunters did find a body, but it was of a 16-year-old named James Annis who had gone out hunting in November 71. So he had gone out hunting about two weeks before the Cooper hijacking. And uh, whatever happened to him, some disaster befell him and he ended up dying. And all they ever found of him, though, even though, you know, they found, I think they found his rifle and maybe a couple leg bones. 
Um, but they never found any clothing of his. They never found his skull. They never found anything. They just found his gun and maybe like his ID or something. So they knew it was him. But this is in a year's time. His body had been completely torn asunder by animals, by the, by the, by the wilderness in just a year's time. So the, the idea that anybody would have ever come across D.B. Cooper's body just splattered on the ground in 1980 or 1975 or whatever is unlikely. Now, certainly his parachute wouldn't have dissolved or anything, but the body would have been torn to bits. So if they didn't find anything of this 16-year-old a year later, then they're probably not going to find much of, of Cooper if he had died, aside from his gear, I suppose, and a big money bag. But you know, but, but regardless, I, I don't think he... I mean, look, he didn't jump into the wilderness. That's another misconception about Cooper is he jumped into a county that had, I think, maybe almost 200,000 people in it in 1970 right next to a city of 400,000 people, Portland. So the idea that he's jumped into the wilderness has been fed over the years by shows like Unsolved Mysteries and In Search Of, because what they do is they show stock footage from 1971 of Ariel, which Ariel has a couple of these mountains that are really, they're just, they stand out. There's big mountains that pop up. I'm not sure how, really how tall they are. Maybe about 4,000 feet is the biggest one. But Ariel is really right where the terrain becomes bad. Okay, um, south of Ariel, you're fine. North of Ariel, you're, you're in some wilderness. But again, Cooper, that the reason we, the reason people thought that he jumped in, near Ariel was based on a timing error by the FBI, in my belief. Um, they thought that he jumped at 811, and most people, most Cooper scholars now agree it was 813, 814, possibly even 815. Um, I would go with 813 probably. Um, but that's why people believe that he jumped in the wilderness is because all the footage of soldiers hiking through the woods is this really dense wilderness, all the fog of aerial. But if they really showed the terrain where he jumped into, which is orchards, battleground, brush prairie, there are trees, but he's just as likely to land in a field as he is in a tree. So I don't see how Cooper dies. Um, so I, I, you know, and not be found. So I, I did. And, and look, as I've said before, I've talked to FBI agents who were on the case. I'm, I'm one of the original case agents from 71, one of the original guys who did it. There were only three of them in 71. He was one of the original ones. He was there from 71, 75. Don't want to say his name, but I asked him I, uh, candidly after a three-hour conversation, I said, look, what was your thoughts on D.B. Cooper? Did he live? He goes, oh, yeah, of course. He said, we knew within a week that or two that he had survived. I mean, when no one found a body landed in their backyard, when nobody, when we didn't spot a parachute hung up in a tree, when there were no vultures circling around, um, we were pretty confident he got away. But, you know, what are we going to tell the media? Well, crap, I guess he got away. No, they're going to say, well, he's, he cratered. He, you know, it's like, don't do drugs, kids. Don't hijack planes because you'll end up dead like Cooper. They were trying to minimize copycats, um, which wasn't too effective, really. But that was their goal. OK, so do I agree with numismatist Arthur Friedberg that the money was never spent? Ah, Friedberg, as smart as he was, didn't have some answers for a couple things in that interview. Um, for example, he didn't know when they started checking destroyed currency. Okay, so serial numbers of destroyed currency were not recorded, I'm almost, I believe, until 1990. Now, we have an FBI document where it says that the average lifespan of a $20 bill at the time was about a year and a half. Now, remember, this is back when currency was used a lot more than it is today. So Cooper or not Cooper, but just everybody used cash more. And so cash didn't survive as long. So I think it's possible he spent the money. But the problem is Tina Barr, right? Thieves generally aren't parted from their money easily. And, and remember, the money that was found on Tina Barr 
$5,800, I believe, is somewhere just south of $50,000 today. So that's not nothing. I mean, that's significant. Uh, thinking about the crew saying that D. Murphy looked like Cooper, D Don, uh, be Donald Murphy, um, the, guy, uh, the guy that I made the video about recently, Donald Sylvester Murphy, looked like Cooper, even though Cooper was said to look Latin. McNally also described as Mexican, thought, you know, McNally is, is Irish, yes. It's fascinating. So McNally was not wearing any makeup at all. I mean, I've asked him this multiple times. I'm like, are you sure that you had no makeup? He goes, no, I wasn't wearing anything on my face. You know, I, I, no makeup at all. Yet McNally was described by his, uh, by his hostages. Uh, they told the media that he looked swarthy, Mexican, Spanish. Um, so sometimes whenever I holler at Mac, I'll say, hey, hola, if I ever call him, I'll say, hola. How you doing? Um, but no, Mac is definitely not, uh, you know, I would say that McNally is, um, is about the least, uh, McNally's about, there he is. Yeah, th this kid's not, and that's actually the same clothes he was wearing actually under his suit. McNally jumped in a business suit, or didn't jump in a business suit, but McNally was wearing a business suit when he jumped, um, much like Cooper. He said he wanted to blend in. But yeah, there's Mac uh, actually wearing, he was wearing a polo shirt and jeans underneath his business suit that he was wearing during his hijacking. And he threw the business suit out the back. But yeah, this dude does not look Latin or, you know, Spanish or whatever. You know, they also called, uh, I found instances where, uh, where they called um, Richard LaPointe, the other, uh, one of the other copycats, they called Richard LaPointe swarthy in uh, some of the media reports. And LaPointe was, LaPointe, there's LaPointe, looks like uh, Wooderson from uh, Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. But yeah, there's the to the point right there. Uh, not exactly swarthy. So there's been some thought about why someone like McNally would be called swarthy or Mexican or why, you know, here this guy here who is a wasp, he's a very waspy person. LaPointe was from, I believe, New Hampshire. Okay, so the, some thought had been that there might have been some kind of inherent bias among the passengers that so many of these hijackers were Cubans. Okay, they were almost exclusively at the time before some of these ransom hijackings were Cubans. So maybe there was just this idea that some kind of preconceived notion that if you're being hijacked, it's got to be some kind of a Cuban. My problem with putting that on Cooper is that literally every single eyewitness, except for Bill Mitchell, but all, all I think, nine other eyewitnesses described Cooper's complexion as olive or dark or medium or, or medium dark, I guess. But so all of them said he was colored, so had some coloring to him. So I do think that that is legitimate. I do think Cooper did have olive skin. Um, I don't think that that was a mistake on their part, just because all of them said it. And it's another reason why I think, too, that he had brown eyes. And I do think Flo is right when she said he had brown eyes is because that, that certainly matches with olive skin. And again, Flo, now Latin appearance comes from two people. That comes from Florence Schaffner and from Robert Gregory. Robert Gregory said he thought that Cooper was Mexican you know, had Mexican ancestry, had Native American ancestry, um, mainly because of the high cheekbones. Um, I've got I've got Native American ancestry too, pretty significantly, and I've got these high cheekbones. So I think that probably was what he was seeing. Um, actually, well, I know it was because he does say in one of the FBI files, Gregory liked that saw the high cheekbones, and his brain went to Native American. But we have Flo though. Flo looked this guy in the eye, and Flo, thirty minutes after getting off the plane, is talking to the FBI and says he had a Latin appearance to him. So I do think there is something uh, to that. All right. So, oh, uh, yeah, Darren, you're there's uh, Darren Schaefer's in the in the chat. I'm not answering this, Darren. You think you're really funny, don't you? How'd the money get to Tina Barr? No habla inglés. 
I have no idea. All right. And somebody else asking how the money gets to the bar. I don't know. What are my thoughts on Cooper being foreign? Well, what is foreign really? Are we talking about like somebody who is an immigrant or somebody who came over just to do that? I do think there is some possibility that Cooper maybe had been born elsewhere. Um, for example, uh, there is a suspect who uh, not many people know about. I actually found this guy in the FBI files, deep in the FBI files. There's a guy named Dr. James Roman. Okay, Now, Dr. James Roman was an uh, astronaut candidate. He was actually born to a Belgian. Now there's that Dan Cooper connection for you, right? He's actually born to a Belgian father and an American mother in France about in the mid-20s, I think. Ended up uh, joining. I don't know when he moved to America, though because he does end up joining the U.S. Army when he's 18, at the tail end of World War II. So he was definitely in America when he was 18. I don't know when he came over here, but he was born in Paris to, you know, like I said, an American mother and a Belgian father. Now, Roman became a test pilot for the Air Force in the 50s. And then he, be- then he got a medical degree and became a pilot, hybrid pilot doctor. He would, he would like do these experiments for the government on himself and on other people. He would fly jets and he was studying the effects of like heavy G forces and things like this on the heart, things like this. He was kind of a, he had a medical degree doing this stuff. Ended up trying to be a NASA astronaut in the early days, in, in like the uh, Mercury era, right? Is when, he, is when he tried to do this. But anyway, so Roman ends up being this astronaut candidate guy, doesn't, doesn't succeed in becoming an astronaut and ends up going, moving to the Portland area and becoming a medical student uh, in the late 60s, tries to become a surgeon. Well, does become a surgeon, gets his, his surgical license there. Now, the weird thing about Roman, though, is that he was apparently a, a bit of a, a shyster doctor, I guess. I don't know how else to, how else to, uh, to explain that he, that he was a bad doctor. Um, they found out, they, apparently he, one time he was doing a kidney operation and somehow sliced a woman's breast off. I don't know how you get from there to there. It seems like a leap to go from uh, doing kidney surgery to cutting someone's breast off, but that's what he did. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, this doctor, okay? So in 1980, he was married to a much younger woman. I believe she was 16 or 17 years younger than he was. She has an affair with somebody, and he ends up killing. It was a, it was a local doctor in Vancouver, Washington. Now, he had moved. He was operating out of Washougal at the time. Okay. So, you know, 20, 30 miles, I guess, east of Vancouver. Now his wife started hooking up with uh, this uh, local doctor in Vancouver. I believe it was an eye doctor. What happens there though, is that he ends up killing the, the, the lover and returns to his home and kills her and then kills himself. Now this is in 1980. Now that's, that is what it is. But the thing to remember about that though, is that and at some point in the early 80s, after he had died, maybe in 82, 83, uh, one of the sheriffs contacted the FBI and goes, you know what? I was thinking about this. And when, when, when that doctor shot himself and killed his wife and killed this other guy, when we went to his house, we started looking in his barn and buried in his barn was dynamite, blasting caps, bat- batteries to set things off, explosives, fake documents, fake like passports, fake uh you know, forgery equipment, police scanners, all kinds of things that you just go, what in the hell? Um, so this guy was leading a serious, like double life of some sort. They even believed that maybe his like medical certificates might've been fake. Um, so he was a real chore, this, this James Roman guy. 
And like I said, he was a jet pilot. He was obviously very a guy who could keep his cool pretty well. This is a guy who's a surgeon, but also a, like a test pilot. So those guys are calm as they can be. And he lived uh, kind of around there. Uh, here's a picture of him. There's not many photographs of him. This is him in 1969. He still has, he was 45 at the time of the hijacking, by the way. This is him uh, wearing a, looks like a black clip on tie, interestingly enough, in 1969 with his military haircut. He was not, he was not out of the military at the time. So his hair was a little, was pretty short there. Like I said, there are, there are so few photographs of him. In fact, we have the FBI files where they're like, can we have a photograph of this guy? Is there, does anybody have a photograph of this guy? The FBI, it's, it's really interesting. When you look at their files, they spend like a year trying to find a photograph of this guy. There he is. So he's an interesting possible suspect, um, this guy. He's a real creep. All right. So let me, uh, that, that's uh, Dr. James Roman. And um, I don't know how I got on to him. I, I, I have to remember what made me, uh, oh, there we go. Cooper being foreign. So yes. Yeah, so this guy technically was born in France. So he's foreign, but um, Canadian's a possibility for sure. I mean, we've got uh, Lee Seller is our best Canadian suspect. He's kind of a newer suspect. Uh, this guy was a uh, Lancaster, Lancaster bomber pilot for the Canadian Air Force in World War II. Apparently had some sort of, he was discharged for reasons during the war. And the thought is maybe some kind of PTSD sort of stuff. He comes back and just kind of messes around, uh, kind of lives like a loser life in a way. Ends up marrying his wife. He gets another wife and she divorces him and he has two kids. He's raising two teenage kids by himself. He had lived in Vancouver, Washington for a time. He was from British Columbia. Lived in Vancouver, Washington in the early 60s. Spent the rest of, the, of his years like in, in, in Seattle area. Well, one day in 19, early 71, I think, maybe December, maybe January 71, maybe December 70, this guy goes, drives to his parents' house in Seattle and drops his two kids off and is never seen again. Um, this guy is 43 or so at the time of that. No, 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 no. Lee Seller was 49, actually. So he's really actually closer to the age the FBI thought. The FBI believed that Cooper was 48 years old. That's what the FBI files say about Cooper. Uh, Lee, uh, Lee Seller is 49 years old. This guy's never seen again. So if you want a Cooper who probably dies, he'd be a good suspect. This is a guy who does who did understand aviation. Uh, his physical profile fits. He was tall, 5'11". There are pictures of him where he's a little darker. I, I think he's a pretty good suspect, especially considering that he was a pilot who had these like delusions of grandeur for himself. Also, he was in trouble with like the mob, perhaps. Family remembers him like people knocking on the door and him running out of the house at the back, out the back door and like not coming back for like three months. And he was very bad with money. So he's a Canadian Cooper suspect. who's was a guy who you know, lived in the, in, in the States for, for most of his adult life. Oh, we also have another guy who might be too short to be Cooper. Um, but there was a furloughed uh, Delta Airlines pilot named Don Carter, who uh, was from British Columbia. Now, Don Carter had been flying from Portland to Seattle his whole life. When he was a teenager, even, he got a pilot's license and flew float planes all over the place. And he actually crashed his float plane in Seattle when he was 18 and killed his girlfriend. He swam to shore in Puget Sound and she died. But um, he was a jet pilot. He was an actual Dan Cooper. Uh, he was a jet pilot. Uh, in the Canadian Air Force in the 50s, and then became a Delta pilot who actually was furloughed in 1971 at the time of the hijacking. And uh, in the late 90s, I believe, um, some some Delta Airlines pilots actually turned him into the FBI. Um, nothing came of it that I know of, but they did contact the FBI and saying, hey, maybe this guy was Cooper, because he really knew, really knew the area. Um, he actually changed his name, too. 
his name was Don Carter, and he changed his name in like 1980 to Gerald Sandness or something like that, of some weird, strange name. That's Don Carter. So yeah, I mean, there are two Canadian suspects that I think are legitimate. Let's see. How and when did the cigarette butts disappear? Do you think the loss of this evidence was due to incompetence or something more nefarious? No, um, I do not think that not anything nefarious there is going on. So what happened with that is, is this. I mean, it, it's quite simple, really. So when they recovered the cigarettes from the plane, the Vegas office of the FBI, which is who had jurisdiction over that aircraft and all the evidence inside of it, Vegas sent the cigarette butts to crime lab of the FBI to figure out what kind of cigarettes they were, for one thing, to, to verify what kind of cigarettes they were, and look for fingerprints. And they told the crime lab, said, they said, hey, I mean, this is all documented. Like I said, this is all in the FBI files that have been released. You know, so that's something, if you're new to this case, you have to put all the, I mean, basically we are AD, it's like BC and AD. You know, there's like after the vault and before the vault. So anything you may have learned about Cooper before the vault releases, you can just forget it, a lot of it, because it's, it's just, a lot of it's erroneous, it's hearsay, and it's just not backed up, uh, backed up by anything. So yeah, we've got, what happened is the, uh, the, the Vegas office says, look, I want you to test these for fingerprints. And if there's no fingerprints on there, you know, if there's no evidence, if it's not good for evidence, if it, if it lacks evidentiary value, feel free to destroy them. Okay, well... Crime lab isn't going to do their dirty work. So the crime lab actually sends the cigarettes back to Vegas. And that's the last we ever hear of the cigarette butts until this document shows up uh, in 1998. You can see here in the middle there, uh, about the cigarette butts, it says, unfortunately, it was discovered that this evidence had been destroyed years earlier in Las Vegas. So we have this FBI document from 98. What happened was uh, Ralph Hope, who was the case agent in 98 in Seattle, wrote to Vegas and said, hey, this DNA stuff's kind of becoming a thing. Do you, you know, what evidence do you have? Do you have the cigarettes down there? Do you have the hair slide? Um, Vegas has to go, well, we don't have any of this stuff. And then Vegas had to admit uh, that the cigarettes had been destroyed. So the whole idea of the cigarettes being missing or anything like that, forget about it. They're not missing. They were intentionally destroyed for lacking evidentiary value. So that's what happened with the cigarette butts. And no, there's nothing nefarious about it. It's just that they didn't, you know, I, I really the thing the thing you have to understand is and it's it's sounds like the FBI is being lazy, but they're not, is that they really thought they were going to catch this guy pretty, pretty early on. And, you know, cigarette butts in, in their brains, I guess, weren't that relevant. Now, looking back, it's a it's a sin what they did. I mean, because this case would be solved now. Right. And it, literally, I would not be making this video right now if those cigarette butts had not been destroyed, because I do believe that, that the DNA would have been recovered believe uh, eight cigarettes and seven of them were smoked by Cooper. One would have Tina Mucklow's DNA on it for what it's worth. But yeah. So that we, we would have the Cooper DNA now if it wasn't for that. So I do think that, uh, that there's that. Jude says, did any of the copycats throw crap out the plane that wasn't found? Yes, absolutely. Most notably, Martin McNally's attache case, his briefcase uh, was never found, even though they know exactly where he jumped. They recovered his submachine gun was actually found. His submachine gun was actually found on the runway of an Air Force base. Mac threw everything out the back of the plane, uh, his, his pants, his suit he was wearing. It's kind of funny. The FBI, when they found his pants, they said, oh, here's proof that the skyjacker died. His, the, 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 the ejection from the jet was so powerful, it tore his clothes off. Right. But that's not what happened. But no, they never found his attache case. And that was an open farm country in uh, Indiana. 
just north of Indianapolis was where McNally jumped. So they never uh, found the attache case. I'm trying to think what else. There were other items they didn't find. I know that McCoy, they never found his one of his uh, suitcases. McCoy uh, brought a suitcase. McCoy, the way that McCoy's hijacking was is that he had a uh, parachute hidden inside of his suitcase. Now, when they landed in San Francisco with McCoy, he had a he had them unload all the luggage onto the runway, and he had a passenger go find his luggage and bring it on board. And this luggage had his helmet and his skydiving gear and his parachute in there. Right now, McCoy threw this suitcase out somewhere, and that was never found. So yes, we absolutely uh, have copycats throwing things out the plane that were never found. And, and if we look at where Cooper probably threw the briefcase out, that's some really, really dense terrain. Like as that, that is the wilderness. That, that's the terrain that you know, the TV would have you think he jumped into. That's north of the Lewis River. That's some really bad terrain. And I think that when it hits the ground, that briefcase is going to bust apart the terminal velocity. It was, it, was, you know, it was described as being a cheap briefcase anyway. So I do think it hits the ground, bus open, maybe a tree breaks its fall. But regardless, decades of foliage are going to cover that thing. And look, if somebody ever came across that, look, D.B. Cooper may be on our mind, but he's not on everybody's mind all the time. So it's possible that a hiker or a hunter maybe maybe came across the briefcase deep in the woods somewhere in 1985 or something, right? But all they would have seen is just some junk in the woods. And if you, I mean, if you ever go hiking in the woods, you're going to see junk. They may have kicked at it and just kept walking. So I, I think it's possible that a briefcase was has been found, you know, or is spotted, but nobody knew what to make of it. If he was a skydiver or a pilot, let's say he was an expert, why wouldn't he bring his own parachute and gear? It's odd to rely on someone else's gear. Absolutely, it's odd to rely on someone else's gear. That's why we are almost, or I am almost certain that he was not a recreational skydiver. This was not a guy who owned skydiving gear. Okay, Now, he may have had a few recreational jumps, but this was not someone who owned the equipment. Consider it this way. We have two copycats who were skydivers, that being Richard McCoy and Rob Hetty. Uh, Rob Hetty, turns out, was a NCAA-like intramural champion skydiver. He was a really good skydiver. McCoy was, his instructors called him a average skydiver. He was not great, but he was good enough to at least own his own gear. Now, our only two uh, copycats who brought their own gear were the two skydivers, which you can deduce is, okay, well, if Cooper didn't bring his own gear, then he probably wasn't a skydiver either. You talk to skydivers, they will swear up and down. They would never in a million years trust just random parachutes given to them. They would bring their own gear. Skydivers are very finicky like that. I mean, look, your life depends on it. We can't overstate that. Now, someone like McNally, who had never even put on a parachute, he just said, I want six parachutes. He opened uh, two or three of them just to make sure they worked. Um, now, they gave McNally front reserve chutes. He goes, my God, they're trying to kill me. They didn't even give me any backpacks. But um, Heineman received backpacks. Uh, LaPointe got backpacks, but Hetty or uh, McNally got front packs. But no, he was not a skydiver. Now, you saying if he was a skydiver or a pilot, why wouldn't he bring his own gear? Well, a pilot, again, I mean, I doubt Bill Ratichek or Captain Scott had skydiving gear, right? Um, and they were pilots. So I don't think there's any connection to a pilot bringing gear. Um, but I do think Cooper was a pilot. I can get into that later on. But I, I that is almost... And it's a real problem with someone like Milton Vordal 
or a lot of these other suspects is who are good suspects, you know, is that Cooper probably gave a he he let slip something that really concerned or made the pilots go hmm, and then it made Northwest Airlines even contacted the FBI and said, hey, were you aware that this hijacker told our pilots this? And what it is is that so. For those who don't know, there's a thing called IFR. That means instrument flying rating, I think. If you are going to be flying in the clouds or where there's low visibility, you have to be given, you have to be, one thing, you have to be IFR rated, which means you can fly using just your instruments. Okay. Um, second, you, you, you are given by air traffic control an IFR clearance. What that is, it's, it kind of creates a cocoon around you. Okay. So it's, you know, 2,000 feet deep. A mile wide, a mile wide, a mile long, something like that, right? So, when Cooper is getting antsy about getting off the ground in Seattle, you know, we have this famous quote: "Let's get the show on the road." Well, most folks don't realize what the preamble was of "Let's get the show on the road." But right before he said that, the pilots were telling him that Cooper was saying, "Hey, what's going on? Why aren't we taking off?" The pilot said, "Well, we're waiting for our, for our IFR clearance because remember the weather was bad, right? We're waiting for our IFR clearance." Cooper immediately shouts back, no, you can pick that up in the air. Let's get the show on the road. Now, you can pick that up in the air, then let's get the show on the road. Now, what he's referring to is picking your IFR clearance up in the air. Now, this specific phraseology, pick it up in the air, is pilot talk. I have spoken, uh, Martin Andrade's father was an airline pilot at the time. Uh, Marty asked him about that, said, yeah, that's verbiage. It's pilot verbiage. Pick it up in the air. So Cooper knew this pilot verbiage, and he also knew that you could pick your IFR clearance up in the air or after you take off, right? Who would know that, you know, unless you were a pilot, right? Maybe if you were air traffic controller or something like that. But again, a lot of air traffic controllers are pilots themselves. That's kind of a hobby that air traffic controllers do. So that was a tell. And if you read like the transcripts, you know, you know, you've got Bill Ratchek saying, hey, I think this guy knows a little bit, of, you know, a, a thing or two about an airplane, you know, and then you've got this document from the one of the head, one of the head muckety mucks, Paul Soderland at Northwest Airlines. Uh, about a week after the hijacking, he, he writes to the FBI saying, hey, this guy mentioned that we could pick our IFR clearance up in the air. Your, your hijacker is a pilot. I mean, that's basically what Paul Sutherland told him. That's what Northwest Airlines told the FBI. They said, look, this guy's a pilot. Whoever he is, you can narrow your search significantly down. This guy's probably a pilot because he talked to our pilots as if he was another pilot. And the thing is, Cooper allowed, Cooper sometimes didn't call their bluff on things. There were things sometimes that Cooper's, that the pilots were talking to Cooper about that he just goes, okay, whatever. But Cooper seemed to know for certain that they were bullshitting him, for lack of a better word, about the IFR clearance. And so he called them out on that. So he seems certain on that. So yes, I, I do think he's a pilot. Instrument flight rules. There we go. Did they find his wig? Oh, McNally's wig. You know what? I, I think they did, actually. I really, really do. I, I think I recall reading that. All right. Somebody asked about thoughts on Don Burnsworth. You know, I don't know a ton about him. Um, I know that he was considered to be a very good pilot, but also a very reckless pilot. Burnworth looks, I would say that um, Don Burnworth, Don Burnworth uh, probably looks, actually, here we go. Yeah. Don Burnworth probably looks more like 
He looks more like the Bing Crosby sketch, folks, than you could even imagine. Just just look at this comparison here between Don Burnworth, who was an airline pilot at the time, uh, and uh, and the Bing sketch. This this will blow your mind. It's almost like he's AI generated. It's 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 so startling just how close those two faces are. I I like Don Burnworth as a suspect. I don't know if he actually had an alibi or not. Um, I would I've I've actually been meaning to research Don Burnworth a lot more. Um, that's the only photograph I've ever seen of him. And uh, what's interesting is look at his mouth. You can even see he has kind of a looks like he's got some kind of lower lip thing going on, which is what we want for Cooper. And just look at him. I mean, if you look at this guy now, this is not a clear photograph. It's not color, but I could see you looking at this guy and saying that this guy maybe has some Latino influence or maybe even Native American influence. Um, you know, so no, Don Burnworth is, he is uh, definitely the, the creme de la creme uh, of, 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 the, uh, of matching the Bing Crosby sketch. He is about as good as it gets. And he was, yeah, Nikki says he was estranged from his family. Uh, he was definitely, Burnworth is someone I'd like to, um, you know, get into, get, 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 you know, get into that a uh, little bit better um, for him. Letty there says, he says about the cigarettes, I still don't understand why they would destroy the cigarettes, knowing how little evidence they had. I mean, look, I agree. If you look at other, if you look at the FBI files from the copycats, from Heine, the ones that we have, which are Heinemann and McCoy's FBI files, like the actual like investigative files from their hijackings, those were night and day different, honestly, the, the, recovering evidence. Now, whether that was a, that may have been a result of the shoddy evidence collection that occurred during the Cooper investigation, you know, six months earlier. So, but they were very thorough during those. I mean, they pulled the whole seats out. They, they took the seat belts out. I mean, you know, they were very thorough in looking for evidence on those two. And I'm actually getting the points that the uh, FBI actually wrote me, the FBI actually wrote me just this past week, last week about Richard LaPointe's files. They said there's 882 uh, pages and they go, are you sure you want it? You sure you want that many pages? Yes, I want them all. FBI, yes, I do want my pages. What's really funny, I wish I knew how many pages it was, um, but I believe McNally's FBI file, gosh, I think is like maybe 4,900 pages pretty extensive. How did Cooper know the 727 could take off with the aft stairs down? My understanding is that prior to this jump, only the CIA seemed to have known that this was done. Uh, not particular. No. Uh, um, actually, uh, we actually have uh, recently, even uh, just recently, uh, there have been, uh, we have found uh, images of in, the, in newspapers of, of the tests that were done uh, at the time. So Boeing was running these tests, uh, jump, you know, throwing stuff out of the aircraft back in the mid '60s, and we know that um, some of these were actually in. They put some of these actually in the paper, uh, these photographs of the uh, of of it all here. But yeah, no, no, there were images, these great images of the 727s in in newspapers, flying around with the air stairs down, saying, "Oh, we can drop things out." So it's actually in the paper in the mid 60s about uh, about all of this going on you can actually see this image here uh, from this is from February of 65 showing them it says here a Boeing 727 takes part in a test demonstrating its use as military air drop assault transport here 
one of the simul- one of the si- simulated cargo loads leaves the plane as it flies at low at low speed and altitude. So yeah, this was actually in the freaking papers that this could be done. So we don't need, you know, Cooper to be, you know, Mr. CIA dude to have this knowledge here. So, and I think maybe it could be just intuitive too. You know, Larry Carr, and it's a good theory, you know, Larry Carr always thought that maybe this guy had been a cargo pusher in the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s on C-130s. And C-130s obviously fly with the, with the, with the rear ramp down. So it could be possibly intuitive uh, that you could do this. Uh, with a 727. And, and here's another article here. I'll put this up here too. This is the Wichita Beacon. This isn't just random Wichita paper here. Uh, you've got the 727 jet offered for military use. They have an entire article in the paper about using 727s to push things out of the back of them, right? So I do think that this isn't exclusively, you know, remember, remember when I said how, you know, we kind of have, we kind of operate now in this this is still citizen sleuth, newspapers.com, people finding things. Chris Brower, who we call him the bloodhound of the Cooper case. Uh, Chris Brower found this stuff in, uh, about all that. So um, it is interesting that, that that stuff was there. So, yeah, Letty says that the article mentioned it could take off with the air stairs down, too. Now, that is something that, no, and they didn't do that either um, back then. Uh, we do have footage of a 727 taking off with the air stairs down. From Da Nang in 1975, there was a 727 taking off. It's horrifying footage. People hanging on for dear life, falling to their deaths. It's on YouTube, but um, people are trying to escape the communists in Da Nang there in 75 when Vietnam, when South Vietnam was collapsing, and uh, people were running onto a 727. Uh, was ta- 727 was taking off with the stairs down, and uh, people were hanging on to it for dear life, and it did take off with the stairs down. Now those stairs were not locked. So the plane was able to rotate, you know, as it took off. So that is the one thing, too. And that is a real interesting topic. And I think that'll be a good topic for a, a video of mine at some point in the future about what what Cooper could have known about the stairs. Nobody had ever taken off with the stairs down, to my knowledge. And in fact, if you want to have a CIA connection or whatever, when the CIA were dropping things from the back of these planes, the stairs were already taken off at takeoff. So the stairs were already taken off when these uh, things were going on. Because remember, on the 727, it wasn't just the, it wasn't just the stairs. You also had the, this bulkhead door that could shut. So they were able to take off with the bulkhead door shut. And then they could open it up in flight and shove whatever they needed to out. So nobody ever took off with air stairs down, to my knowledge, ever, ex- except this moment in Da Nang where... These pilots were freaking out and they didn't have time to kick everybody out. So as far as I know, that's the only time that that's ever been done. So let's see. Yeah, they're saying that McNally, yeah, McNally actually jumped at 330 miles an hour, almost twice Cooper's speed. McNally is a true miracle. Uh, You talk to skydivers like Mark Meltzer and Meltzer did not believe us. When I was telling Mark that McNally jumped 330 miles an hour and had never even pulled a parachute before, even put on a parachute before. He was like, oh, Ryan must be exaggerating. But I showed him the actual article from the pilot. Uh, The next day, we had the pilot saying, yeah, I was trying to kill the guy. They didn't like Mac. And they were, they, they gunned it. And Mac told him to slow down, um, but they gunned it. And he jumped out at 330 miles an hour. And uh, 
managed to live. The FBI thought he had died. The FBI said there's no way anybody could survive falling out of a plane at 330 miles an hour. So what's interesting about it is Mac uh, actually, McNally, call him Mac, but, it's know, but Mac actually used that as a trial strategy when he was being tried for the crime. He said, look, the FBI and all these aviation guys say that no human could survive this. Well, I'm still alive. So I obviously couldn't have been the guy who hijacked the plane because the guy, because they're all saying the guy died. It's impossible to live. So how could it be me? So that was his, uh, that was Mac's little thing there. Has anybody seriously looked into whether the tie particles could possibly be remnants of 70s fingerprint powder? Absolutely. Yeah, that has been looked into and it's not, I forget the substance, but I mean, and they did find that on the tie. Uh, I do, that is for sure. There is uh, fingerprint residue um, from the chemical that the FBI used on the tie, but then you've got thousands of other random particles. Now, we know from Tom Kay's research recently that the majority, the vast majority, I mean, probably come from uh, matches. So we have a guy who's lighting his cigarettes with matches, and we know Cooper was a match guy. Obviously, he had two matches. He had two matchbooks on his on the plane, obviously. So he was not a guy who lit his cigarettes usually with lighters. A lot of that is from matches. If you actually look at the tie, I wish I had that image, but if you zoom in on the tie uh, under a certain lighting, you can see that the knot of the tie has a particular amount of this gunk on it. And so the thought being that you light a match and so all that kind of chemicals get on your fingers and you know, they're just going to be on your fingers and you just kind of touch your tie every now and then and things like that. So the tie knot actually has the majority of, or not majority, but a good amount, a, a higher than normal percentage of particles are on the tie, or on the, the neck, on the uh, knot of the tie from where he had been putting it on. Predictions for the Cooper case in the next few years. I don't know. Um, the next few years are going to be interesting as far as the FBI files go. What we're going to get in the FBI files through the next few years are suspect files. We're moving now into suspect files where the first 45,000 documents that they've been given are basically just documents, um, correspondences. It's documents that were sent to the Seattle office or from the Seattle office. So it's correspondences. So we have about 45,000 of them. That's why if you look up, if you go pull up a vault, file and look at it, it's always going to say at the top to Phoenix office, you know, or from Phoenix office or from Mississippi or wherever, right? So um, if you were important enough, or if there was a lead that was important enough, they would give it a, a actual subject file. Um, they, they would give you a subject file number. Now they gave, there were 1,062 of these folders that were independent folders of just suspect investigation. Um, or not not always, most of them are suspects, but sometimes it was leads. For example, subject file number 130 is just hoax letters, or I believe that um, the tie, I forget exactly uh, what the, uh, actually I have, a, I have a list here I've, I've been keeping. I, I, I had been wondering who the first person to be given a suspect file was for the longest time, because I know that the last person, suspect number 1062, was L.D. Cooper. Uncle LD, as we call him in the vortex. Uh, Kenny Christensen was uh, 1061. Dwayne Weber is 1055. Let's see who else we know. Somewhere, yeah, Rackstraw is 933. Uh, McCoy, I believe, is is uh, 327. Is Langseth. McCoy is 386. Sheridan Peterson oh, is 112, I think. But the first one was this guy named Joseph Henry Johnston. And I don't know a lot about him. There's not a lot in there. 
but it's pretty cool uh, to actually see this. Um, so the next, I don't know, 40,000 files are just going to be these suspect files mostly. Uh, we're going to get a lot of cool information possibly about Sheridan Peterson and uh, eventually we're going to, well, I've, I think my FOIA will probably come out. I've actually FOIA'd uh, Jason Langseth's file and also Fred Catalano's file. Now, the problem with the FOIAing is you can't just contact the FBI. For example, Ted Braden. Ted Braden, I call him the god of circumstantial evidence, right? He is, if you could invent D.B. Cooper, you'd probably invent Ted Braden, right? I don't know his suspect number, if he even has one. Uh, Larry Carr told me he has never even seen the name Ted Braden until recently. So he, Braden might not even be, I find that hard to believe. Um, I, I cannot, almost cannot fathom that Ted Braden would not be a suspect. I mean, you have this known mastermind criminal skydiver who's driving a truck, you know, in 71 with a grudge. And the, and the government certainly knew about Ted Braden. I mean, Ted Braden was the reason they had congressional hearings on Mac V. Sog. Ted Braden exposed Mac V. Sog, which was the CIA's military. Mac V. Sog was basically the paramilitary wing of the CIA. And they were doing, operate, they were doing illegal operations in Laos and Cambodia and during the Vietnam War. And Ted Braden, when he got kicked out of the military, uh, published a whole article about Mac V. Sog. Um, it was classified, you know, and he didn't care. You know, he but, he but he published this article, and Congress threw a fit. They had congressional hearings over. They said, "What are you? Is, this, is the CIA trying to start World War III? So they knew Ted Braden was. But anyway, uh, um, if you don't know their number, then you cannot ask for FOIA. Okay, so for example, I, I asked for Ted Braden's file, and the FBI goes, "We cannot confirm nor deny that Ted Braden has any files here." then you get a suspect number. And every now and then, now, now these suspect numbers are generally only like handwritten. Usually they're handwritten on a document. So for example, if you've come across a Jason Langseth document or Sheridan Peterson document, you might see written in the corner in handwriting 112. And you know that that's the file that's supposed to go. And so that's going to be his numbers, 112. Now, these overzealous interns with the FBI who are redacting these things will redact these numbers sometimes. Sometimes they won't, though. So it, it it has been let loose sometimes, the numbers. So you have to have these numbers to actually get a file. So, um, but yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned, I'm interested to see the files for Langseth, for Catalano. We've, we've, we've already got McCoy's, most of McCoy's file from the, from this case. How much resources have been put into identifying people who disappeared at the time, but also people who potentially weren't reported yeah, so good question. They put a lot of resources. I, I wish I knew the number here. Actually, I might have the number right here in my file here uh, for everybody to see. So it looks like that they actually, so the, the FBI did think he could have been a missing person. So the FBI, they sent out basically uh, on an APB, I guess, an all points bulletin saying, hey, look, I want you know anybody and everybody, send us any, any local law enforcement, sheriff's department, whatever, in the country, send us all your missing persons who went missing in this year, right? Basically. And so what happened was it looks like, I believe I'm reading this right. Looks like that they came up with approximately 5,200 uh, cards were reviewed. So they got around 5,200 missing persons reports from 71 and then into 72, because obviously people would be reported later. 
says this search this search of the missing persons was based on them on the presumption that that the subject may have perished during the jump from the aircraft and that some relative somewhere may have filed a missing persons report. So yeah, they did do that and they got 50, of the 5,200 people, they came up with 21 who uh, would fit the general description of Cooper. Of those 21, obviously nothing came of it. But as far as people being reported later on, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a suspect who one of our uh, top people in the Vortex uh, has been on for a couple of years now who was not reported missing until, I believe, 2020. Um, or think about this. So remember, I just, uh, we discussed earlier Lee Seller, the Canadian pilot who dropped his kids off at his parents' house and was never seen again, right? That family never filed a missing persons report on him, ever. This guy literally, who had two kids, um, just vanished. And they never filed, still to this day, they never filed a missing persons report. In fact, uh, the, only, the, only, the only reason I even know about Lee Sellers is because uh, his nephew was watching, like, I think the Netflix documentary. And uh, was just saw the Dan Cooper comic stuff. Said, "Hey, I had an uncle who was a Canadian pilot in in, in, in the military, and he went missing in '71. I wonder, you know." And he reached out to me and said, "Well, by God, he's got a lot. He's he's a pretty good suspect, actually." I'll uh, I'll pull up a photo here. I think I've got one of uh, him uh, of uh, of, of uh, Lee Sellers for y'all who are wondering uh, what Sellers uh, looked like some pictures of Lee, but yeah. So the missing persons, uh, yeah, people can be, people can be not reported at all. In fact, it's called the missing missing. And I believe Chris Cunningham has done research on this. And even right now, I believe the number is somewhere around a million. There's like a million people in America, even who are what's called missing, missing, meaning like they're just, you know, absconded, I guess, uh, from, from, from the, from their family or, or maybe their family, you know, does, you know, doesn't care. I often mention it that I, I have an uncle who we didn't know if he was alive or dead. You know, he's just gone from our lives. Um, you know, for all we know, you know, whatever. But you know, so I think that that's definitely a consideration. Is that he's somebody like like I said at the very beginning, Cooper. In my opinion, in my estimation, the reason why no one's come forward about it or whatever is that this guy was somebody who was just uh just no one no one cared his family didn't uh, didn't seem to didn't seem to really care about him much we've got all these people who are missing missing and then you got people like as far as as far as the missing people go i would say that the number one suspect there um is going to be melvin wilson you know I, I think that melvin wilson is our best missing person suspect you know this guy if, if those who don't know melvin wilson was kind of a gangstery sort of guy who was kind of a con man, I would say. And Melvin Wilson, I guess August of 70, August of 71, maybe I, maybe September, had been indicted for uh, counterfeiting $200,000 of $20 bills. So he had just been indicted for, for, for uh, counterfeiting $200,000. When he got indicted, he fled and has never been seen since. Uh, now, we do know now from DNA that he did survive past uh, 71. He ended up having a child with an 18-year-old. Melvin was 43, I think, at the time. Ended up having a child uh, with an 18-year-old in uh, British Columbia. He showed up there in early 70, early, early 72, claiming to be an out-of-work airline pilot. But Melvin Wilson's a good suspect. He just don't... don't the, Melvin Wilson would be a... 
he's always been kind of a dark horse suspect for me because he the problem is he was a navy man a, a surface navy he was not navy aviation either he was, he has no history of aviation like i said cooper was almost certainly a pilot i that's a hill i'm going to die on um is that this guy really knew aviation or knew you know enough about aviation to know what an ifr clearance was and to argue with the pilots about it right so i don't know if melvin wilson knew that but you talk about somebody on the nose this guy had just counterfeited $200,000 and had been indicted by a federal grand jury, okay? And was on the run at the time and then shows up in the area and has and, and, and knocks a girl up uh, in a few months later in British Columbia. So he's in the, so he's in the Pacific Northwest. He, had, uh, he was originally in Wisconsin. I'll add that too. He had come from Wisconsin. So that's where he had fled from. Did the flight have assigned seats? No. Um, so. Basically, back then, you bought a ticket for first class or what they called the tourist cabin. So and it was general admission. So it's almost like getting on a bus. In fact, it's very much people who flew back then will often say that it was like like taking a bus. Uh, in fact, it, you know, I think about, you know, some of the economy airlines, if you go to Europe, Ryanair or some, I forget what the other ones are, but those airlines where you pay 50 bucks to fly from you know, London to Berlin or wherever, those are, or I guess what was, I guess Southwest does that, doesn't, yeah, Southwest has general admission seating, essentially. So no, there were no assigned seats. And Cooper was actually the second to last passenger to board. Bill Mitchell was the final passenger to board. So um, Cooper did have a choice of where to sit. And it always makes me wonder where he would have, what he would have done if somebody had been sitting in the back. But um, because those back rows were right next to both toilets, Generally, I would think that you know anybody, you know, nobody would want to sit back there voluntarily if they had a choice. Uh, Bill Mitchell sat back there. As far as from talking to him, Bill sat there because he wanted to be able to. He had his school books with him, and he kind of wanted to have room to like lay his books out. And that's also why Bill didn't want to move up. Uh, Bill was belligerent. Cooper asked everybody. To, Cooper told Tina to move everybody several rows forward, um, but Bill refused. He said, I'm fine here. Kind of got kind of got a little attitude with Tina and said, I'm I'm good. Yeah. And then later on, finally, before they landed in Seattle, um, I believe Alice Hancock came back there and basically begged him. Bill said that a brown haired stewardess came back there and uh, gave him a real sweet look and said, please, please move forward. And he finally did. Um, so because that would have been Alice, because obviously Flo and Schaffner would have been in the cockpit at the time. So it definitely would have, been, would have been Alice that did this for him. So um, there's that. So no, there's no assigned seating. So I often wonder what Cooper would have done if the back rows weren't. But remember, this is a plane that could hold, I think, 108 passengers. Don't quote me on that. but Somewhere around like 108 maybe. And there were only 36 passengers, including Cooper. Okay, uh, what do you think Cooper did upon landing? How do you think he got home? Well, if I know. Um, I would say that, again, people might think I belabor the point too much about the copycats, but really the copycats are the only analog we have. So we have to look at the copycats. I, I, you know, we look at what they did. McNally's idea was to just wing it. He was going to just land somewhere and, um, and hotwire a car. He was going to steal a car and drive home. That was his plan. But... Um, McCoy, his plan originally was to meet up with his wife at a certain spot. Now, remember, difference in McCoy 
and other people and Cooper is Cooper gave Cooper had no idea where where, where he was really. I, I, I the most I'll give Cooper in my estimation is Cooper may have known what county he was in at the time. I think he may have known he was in Clark County, Washington, if he knew the area. Because he probably could tell, I mean, he dead reckoned how long he had been in the air. 30 minutes to Portland, he knows, looking down, there's civilization beneath him. There's city lights and things. So anyway, McCoy, yeah, he was going to meet up with his wife. And uh, he did not, actually. His wife got spooked, and McCoy got spooked, too. And, and his wife drove home. She got spooked because there were helicopters flying over and stuff. McCoy ended up uh, buying or bribing a kid, gave him $20 to drop him off at his house. Um, Rob Hetty parked his car somewhere. And uh, Rob Hetty was a good enough skydiver that he planned on uh, he planned on landing near his car. Now the pilot for Hetty Hetty gave specific flight directions for the pilot to follow. The pilot said, "Well, screw this guy. I'm not going to follow these headings." The pilot actually deviated a couple of degrees, so he ended up uh, Hetty ended up landing on the lo- on the wrong side of I believe I don't know if it was Lake Tahoe, but one of the lakes uh, south of Reno, and he had to like spend all night walking back to around the lake to his car that had been parked on the side of the road. Problem is uh, his car had a U.S. Parachute Association bumper sticker on it. And so the FBI, uh, knowing where he jumped or roughly spotted this car that had a parachute bumper sticker on it. So they just staked out his car. And when he emerged from the woods, they got him. Uh, Richard LaPointe, don't know enough about him to know what his plan was on the ground. I think he was just winging it. Uh, Heineman was the same way. Heineman was absolutely just winging it. He jumped into the, into the jungle of Honduras. There's no way he would have known what he was had a real plan for what to do. Gossett and Gossett wouldn't care where he landed. Yeah, Gossett's somebody who wouldn't have cared. He, you know, he was a survivalist. Apparently, according to his son, I believe his son's Greg. Greg said that Gossett would go out and uh, be dropped off in the woods and like tell his family to pick him up miles away, thirty miles away, in a few days. So. Definitely, uh, you know, Gossett would have would have been a good suspect. Gossett, in the you know, on paper, Gossett makes a pretty good suspect. But the problem with Gossett is his physically, I, I don't, I don't see, you know, people people like his resemblance to composite uh, B, to that sketch. But really, if you if you look at, you know, Gossett's facial features, he's got kind of a broad nose, and he's got also. No eyebrows. Like Cooper had defined eyebrows, according to, you know, what what you know, according to his description. All right. So Gossett, you know, I don't think he's a a good physical match. Um, and also, we've got photographs of Gossett from. It's there. There's right there. Actually, um, let me let me let me, pull, let me let me pull this up here. We actually have a photo of Gossett from 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 the same month as the hijacking. Here he is. Okay, this is Gossett on the same month. And you can see, I don't see any sideburns on him. Cooper apparently had some sideburns. His head is a little roundish, sort of. You know, like I said, in my most recent video about about Cooper, I I really think that Cooper had a a head that was this narrow kind of head. And I don't think that Gossett really has that. Gossett's a good suspect, um, but I'm not sold on him. I don't like Gossett's, uh, I'm not a fan of Gossett's, his look. I know that people like sometimes Gossett. Um, and, you know, I would say that Gossett is certainly a, a B-tier suspect, but I don't think that Gossett is, um, I don't like him as much as other people do as far as his physical features. I don't, look at that, he, the guy didn't have much eyebrows. See, that nose is really wide. And he has these thin little lips, doesn't have the thick lower lips, but I don't see a long, 
the, you know, the one thing about Gossett that is interesting is if you look at his neck, Gossett does have this sort of neck skin thing uh, that Bill Mitchell discussed. So that does make him, that is interesting about Gossett, but really there's nothing to tie Gossett. I mean, not, nothing truly to tie Gossett to Cooper. What would you think if we saw a picture of any suspect with McCoy? That would be interesting. But again, as I've told people, McCoy's knowledge came from just studying the case. Remember, McCoy wrote a term paper on skyjacking, specifically D.B. Cooper skyjackings for his criminal justice class. He was a criminal justice major. So he wrote this paper and that's how we know. And that's how he knows so much about Cooper. And what's funny is people like to say that his hijacking is so much like Cooper's. It really isn't. He used a grenade and a gun. He used passengers to begin the hijacking. He didn't pass a note to the stewardess. He used he passed a note to a passenger, told the passenger to go tell the stewardesses this stuff. He brought his own gear. He gave specific flight instructions. The closest copycat to Cooper, probably Melvin Fisher, who was the one who chickened out. We've got five copycats who actually jumped out, that being LaPointe, McCoy, Hetty, Heineman, and Mac. Then I include Melvin Fisher in our copycat script. He actually had the money tied to his body, had his parachute on, and basically sat on the stairs for two hours, scared to jump. And then eventually meekly knocks on a cockpit door and turns himself in and says, I don't want to die. His hijacking is really good. You know, he had a briefcase bomb sort of thing. Uh, very Coopery. I mean, like if Yes, McCoy is the polar opposite of Cooper. There's no no way even there's no, nothing. I don't I don't get. I, I mean, the McCoy and Cooper thing is just. I don't know where that Grider I think is a uh, Jedi mind tricks people a whole, whole lot of people into thinking that, and there's just nothing there. So, but Melvin Fisher's our closest analog to Cooper, I think, and he was a failed businessman, 49 years old. He was in trouble with he was in trouble with the law. If Fisher had never, if Fisher had gotten out with $500,000 and was never seen again, I would actually put some stock into that being Cooper striking again because their skyjackings were so, were so similar. I'm going to add this to this uh, picture. So y'all can see Melvin Fisher. You can see this uh, thing from Melvin Fisher's hijacking and think about how closely it kind of, when you look at it, how funny it kind of, it sounds just like what you read about the Cooper case. So here's Melvin Fisher. Here's what the pilot said about this guy the next day. It says, the captain of flight 633 and two stewardesses in opening day testimony said Fisher appeared rational, coherent, and knew a lot about airplanes. Captain Charles Dodd said it became apparent that Fisher, 49, knew a little more than the average person knew about flying when he told Dodds it would be all right to take off with a tailwind if the wind was less than 10 knots. Also, he knew about our dual communication system. Dodd said at one point, Fisher told him an exact pattern to fly at and at what altitude and insisted that he lower the rear stairwell and flaps to slow the plane down and to give it greater stability while he prepared to parachute. Fisher also was told, uh, uh, one of his stewardesses talked about, talked about Melvin Fisher and said that he was you know, so nice and polite and didn't swear at me or whatever. There's the Melvin Fisher's mug shot there. So obviously, you know, he's not Cooper, but that's, uh, that's Melvin Fisher right there. For those, who for those who never seen him, yeah, he just chickened out. He just couldn't couldn't bring himself to jump. So, so he's a, he's our copycat who he's our copycat who did not jump. Did Cooper have any way of knowing exactly when his feet would hit the ground, moonlight or pitch black? If he no, not really. I mean, you know, depending on when he opened his parachute, 
he's going to hit the ground, you know, within, I think it's five minutes. I mean, it's not a long time to descend um, from 10,000 feet. It's maybe five to 10, maybe five to 10 minutes, maybe, maybe less even. I'm not sure exactly. I should know that. But the problem with Cooper is, look, Cooper did not give, did not give, he, Cooper didn't even know what speed they were flying at. Now, yes, Cooper gave restraints on how fast it could fly. Cooper did tell them, you know, put the gear down, flap down. I mean, that does constrain how fast you can fly. You can't, you know, fly over 200 miles an hour. But Cooper, but again, when you're flying three miles, three miles a minute, every minute matters. And every 10 miles an hour you go quicker or slower really matters. So Cooper had no idea what how fast they were going. He never asked, didn't tell them. Cooper never told them where to fly, really. Um, so you know, people can say, and it is true, the only low altitude flight vector, which is you know like a highway in the sky, planes just don't fly you know willy nilly all over the sky. I mean, it's, it's almost like in the ocean they have shipping lanes, right? Anyway, so pilots fly on these sky highways called vectors, right? So um, for Cooper, he didn't specify. So he may have known that the only sky highway that they could fly on was Victor 23 between Seattle and Portland. But uh, Victor 23 at the time was 10 miles wide. So that plane could have been anywhere within that 10 mile wide area. So to think that Cooper had any idea where he was when he landed with any specificity is, is, is pretty much impossible. Because he didn't, because because he didn't know what the pilots were going to be doing, he could not have assumed that the pilots were going to fly directly down Victor Twenty Three, which is what they did. It's not an assumption he could could have made, you know, to prepare to land somewhere specifically. That's why I say he may have had an idea of what county he was in, but not anywhere specifically. I don't know my moon cycles, but it was not a full moon, and it was not a uh, no moon. Um, there was some moonlight there. Another problem too with Cooper landing blind is also the cloud cover. So you had three three layers of cloud cover. There was cloud cover at five thousand feet, uh, I believe fifteen hundred, and then maybe another at a thousand. Okay, so he had three cloud covers, three layers of cloud covers beneath him. So he would not have even. It's possible that Cooper didn't have any idea of what was beneath him until he emerged from that lowest level of cloud cover at 1,500 feet. So he's looking down going, oh, shit. You know, so, and, and again, you talk to skydivers. I often, you know, our grand skydiver in the vortex is Mark Meltzer. Been doing it for 50 years, 1,000 thousand jumps or more. And Meltzer is just like, that's terrifying. Making a night jump, not knowing anything about where you're jumping into, you know, you, you know, power lines, you can run into power lines and be killed, land in water and be killed, um, you know, all, all manner of land on the side of a land on the side of a cliff and get hung up. I mean, all manner of horrible, horrible things happen when skydivers do night jumps. That stuff is highly, highly, highly regulated. Jumping at night is, is very dangerous. And so Cooper was uh, very brave or very stupid. So how likely is it that Cooper was special forces? I don't think so. I, I don't see any reason for him to be special forces. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I have no reason to not think he's special forces, but Cooper's a bit timid. We know that Cooper multiple times asked about sky marshals on the plane. He was concerned about sky marshals. 
Alice Hancock says he wanted constant reassurances. Yes, Drew Beeson says, I do believe in the special forces. Yes. Yeah, Ted Braden, uh, Beeson and I will be doing a video together at some point about Braden. Braden's a good suspect. But I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. He could have been special forces in World War II or something. I, I mean, like I said, my general template at the current moment. Now, again, my ideas can shift by what I see in the files and what I learn. Um, but my opinion now is that if he, when he was in the military, and I do think his age, he was in the military. I would speculate he was, he, had been, he was a pilot at some point in the military. What was the term phrase Cooper used when he said you can pick it up in the air? I mean, it's IFR clearance, IFR, IFR clearance. Um, I may have that uh, actually in my documents here. Yeah, let me add this. Actually, this is, this is the actual document that, the, uh, that Northwest Airlines sent to them about this. Here we go. Sutherland, Sutherland advised that in reviewing conversations held by the pilot during the hijacking, the comment was made by the hijacker concerning IFR clearance. You can pick it up in the air, quote. This indicates to Soderlin that the hijacker has fly, flying background inasmuch as he knew procedures for IFR clearance. So there's our, our, our uh, IFR clearance thing there. Yeah, World War II, they jumped all the time at night in bailouts. Of course, yeah. I mean, World War II, yeah, those guys jumped out at night. It's not a death sentence to jump out at night at all. Your likelihood of being injured is certainly increased significantly by jumping at night. So now there is some speculation, well, not speculation, you know, Tina Mucklow, when Tina Mucklow described, there's something else about Cooper too. We have this image of Cooper with the money bag tied to himself, but this illustration right here actually shows how Cooper was dressed actually. or This is how Tina Mucklow said that Cooper was, uh, his, he, how, how he was geared up is that he had this, uh, that the money bag was on a tether tied to his waist. She says, Tina says that whenever he would walk down the aisle of the plane, that the bag would be dragging behind him. So now paratroopers would often jump. Uh, they do jump with like leg bags sometimes because the leg bag will hit the ground first. For one thing, it takes the weight off of their landing to have heavy gear off of their body, but also it lets them know where the ground is too, because their bag is going to hit first and they're going to hear that thump and they're going to have a few seconds um, to, to prepare for themselves for the shock of the, of the landing to, to be able to do a, uh, a PLF, they call it, which is a parachute landing fall to be able to break their fall in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way like that. Cooper had a dark complexion. Is there any chance he may have been Israeli special forces? I mean, I don't think so, but I mean, you never know. I mean, maybe he could have been. Interestingly enough, the FBI only ever, when they thought about his coloring, the FBI did look into Mexican, uh, the Hispanic, Latinos. Uh, they mentioned Mediterraneans. They mentioned Italians. Never seen them mention Jewish people. Uh, so that's interesting. That's a good thought, actually. But I don't know if he was Israeli. I mean, you know, he had no accent, but maybe... You won't like this, but can you give your best on the Tina Bar money find? Oof. Okay, Woody, let me just jump to this question real quick. I'll come back to that. Woody have had air, air issues at 14,000 feet. Was he, was he light on oxygen? Cooper jumped at 10,000 feet and not at 14. But so no, Cooper, Cooper had no problems jumping. He was at 10,000 feet. Cooper was cognizant of that as well. Cooper knew the height that he could go at without being on oxygen. Now, 
that comes from somewhere. I don't know where that would come from, his knowledge of that, perhaps from military service. I don't know. Um, in fact, Ratajkowski even says that in the in the actual radio transcripts, Ratajkowski says he wants us to fly at 10,000 feet so the plane doesn't become pressurized. I don't know where he picked that up from. So Rat's like, I don't know where he would have learned that, but he, he knew he knows that. So, but now McCoy jumped at 14,000 feet, and his crew actually was on oxygen at the time in the cockpit. So McCoy, I, I mean, he, he may have been on oxygen himself. There were portable oxygen tanks that I believe he knew that, that maybe he was maybe he asked about where they were, something like that. But McCoy, I believe there's something in his files about the stewardesses seeing him with a portable oxygen bottle. Next questions. Right, but Tina Barr, I I I, don't, I can't do it. Um, I'll, I'll dwell on that. Darren says, what suspect being Cooper makes the best story? Barb, Howard Hunt, Gossett, or Braden? Probably Barb Dayton, obviously. I mean, you know, Barb is Barb's the first person to have transgender uh, or gender reassignment surgery in the state of Washington. Um, Barb is transgender. Barb could be a man and be a woman at the same time. I mean, Barb could have landed on the ground and put her female wig on and been a woman. Could have had woman's clothes under the, under there. You know, Barb is somebody I've thought about recently. I give Barb a tough time as a suspect, but look, Barb is not a physical match. That's kind of the one of the issues with Barb is that Barb's a little too small. I believe Barb was maybe five seven or five eight, a little too small to be Cooper in my estimation. Um, Barb, blonde hair. Now Barb could have dyed her hair black, you know. But the problem with Barb is that Barb told two different Barb. Neither of Barb's narratives. We have two different narratives that she's that she told of the hijacking of how it went down. She told the foreman's two different things. And neither of these narratives fit with what we know about the case. So we, you know, we've got Barb you know, saying that she landed in Oregon, and we know that that's not true. So if, it's kind of like Recca. Like Recca, for as much as I dislike Recca as a suspect, my main problem with Recca is them saying he jumped, was it 130 miles away from where we know Cooper jumped on the wrong side of the state? You know, I mean, that, that you can't even take, can't take that seriously. Barb also says is is jumping in the wrong spot. Barb says she's jumping in Oregon, so that's not true. Jack Cofelt is not the worst suspect ever, but Jack Cofelt, for all of his bullshit, has him jumping in near 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 uh, Mount Hood. When you can't even get where Cooper jumped right, then you're not Cooper as a suspect, right? Yeah, wrong side of the plane too. P- uh, possibility of Barb being Clara. This is, uh, well, that's the Gunther stuff, people. That's a whole other issue that's going on, drama in the vortex now about Gunther and Clara and all this other stuff. And uh, possibly Barb could be Clara. Um, you know, uh, Barb was certainly a very early Cooperite. People say you can smell your own kind, right? Uh, I can kind of smell Barb Dayton being one of us as far as like a Cooperite. I think Barb was a very early Cooperite. And so possibly Barb could. You know, whoever, if someone did hoax Max Gunther to write the D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened book, then it was somebody who had a real fascination with D.B. Cooper, obviously. And we know that Barb had a very early fascination with with D.B. Cooper. Okay, so here is one scenario for Tina Barb. Just here we go. We know that Cooper was generous with his money, right? Cooper, Cooper gave or offered Tina money. 
He offered Flo and Alice money. So Cooper was a generous individual, I suppose. Try to picture a scenario where Cooper lands on the ground and he's going to wing it. And he gets to a road. Look, I mean, wherever Cooper landed, he was pretty, he was within, if you go along the flight path, Cooper's going to land within five to seven miles of I-5, okay, of of an interstate. So he's not like, again, he's not in the wilderness, right? Cooper is close to an interstate, really, uh, possibly within a couple miles of an interstate. So let's just say Cooper gets to a gas station or somewhere and hitchhikes a ride back to wherever his, let's just say Cooper parked his car in Portland, right? And let's say he hitchhikes a ride with somebody. Try to picture a scenario where Cooper is given a ride by somebody. And as he exits this ride, he throws a bundle at this kid or whoever says, hey, thanks for the ride, and just walks off really quickly, right? Or maybe he leaves a bundle in in the car for this kid for this person, and you know. And so imagine a scenario where this person is like, "What in the absolute hell was this money?" Remember, six thousand dollars, which is what those, which is what a three pack bundle would have been, is about fifty thousand dollars today. So I'm just picturing this person going, "What in the hell?" And they're driving. This person is driving down Lower River Road, or wherever it's called, or whatever the road is down by Tina Bar. I think River Road's Lewis River, but anyway. Uh, he's driving down the road by Tina Bar, and here's on the here's on the radio about this hijacking. He goes, "Oh my God, that was the hijacker! This is hijack money!" And gets scared and just throws it out the window. I, what, I, what I would do, okay? I don't want to be. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I took money from this guy. I'm an accessory to a capital offense. All of a sudden, I ain't, I, know, I, I don't want no evidence that I did this, right? So imagine him throwing this bundle out 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 the window. Now there are areas on that road there that go by Tina Bar. Uh, south of there, they go by a place called Caterpillar Island. Now the road, you look up Google Earth, the road comes within 10, 15 yards of the water line. Okay, so if you chunk money out, it lands in the bushes. You know, we get some flooding happening at some point in 72. It might push it, the money a little bit toward Tina Bar and then it gets buried there. So there aren't, and, and that, if that sounds out of, that, that sounds so crazy. Yeah, it's improbable but there the problem with tina Barr is there are literally no probable theories that's the problem with it we don't know like no matter what your tina Barr theory is it's going to be stupid sounding because nothing makes sense there's no scenario that makes sense because if there was a scenario that made more like that was more likely than not to be true then we'd all be like okay well that's that's tina Barr. so that that's that's one theory for how Cooper could keep his money and that he just gave it to some random person who got scared and threw it, threw it out the window and, and landed in some bushes or something. I don't know. There, there are ways to attack that. That is, that's the best I can come up with as far as that goes. I mean, it, it's not good at all. Valley, Valley says, uh, do we know for a fact that cigarette butts were destroyed? Yeah, Valley, you, were, you may have missed it earlier. Let me pull that, put that back up. Um, you can see here, this is, an, this is an FBI document from 98. And if you look at that middle line, the middle part says, I'll, I'll read it for those who are listening to this on the podcast. It says, this document says, the DNA unit was contacted and agreed to perform an unknown subject analysis on the numerous cigarette butts left by Cooper on the aircraft that day. They believed it likely that DNA could be recovered from the butts. Unfortunately, 
it was discovered that this evidence had been destroyed years earlier in Las Vegas. So yes, we actually, yeah, we have, we have the documentation now that the cigarette butts were absolutely 100% destroyed. And I, it's funny, I asked Larry Carr, I said, what, you know, because they destroy evidence in certain ways. I think guns are melted, even drugs are burned, I believe. I mean, there's always different ways that they get rid of evidence. I asked Larry, I said, what would destroyed mean in 71 with cigarette butts? He goes, oh, they just threw them in the trash. Okay. So, yes, an ignominious end for the evidence that uh, that would have solved this case 20 years ago is that these things ended up in the trash can in the Las Vegas office, more than likely. Now, I do think that the uh, D.B. Cooper hair slide probably is still in Las Vegas at that office there. I, I do think that's a good thought, that that, that, that the hair slide... I, I have, obviously, I foia the FBI for the hair slide. Um, they said they sent me something. I, I never received anything about it. May have been recently. I just haven't gotten it yet. So we're maybe close to learning something more about the hair slide. But um, I would speculate that that hair slide is probably in Las Vegas, probably in a miscellaneous evidence folder. Uh, we just need somebody to check. Chance of an FBI wanting to keep a souvenir. I, I should contact my agent, who was an agent back then, and ask him about that uh, to see if, I mean, I, that would seem to be those, I mean, here's the problem, people, is that FBI agents are, uh, they're Boy Scouts, and they're not as Boy Scouty as you can get. They are so by the book, so boring, no offense to my boy Larry, but, you know, they're very, Larry's Larry's that not boring FBI agent. That's why Larry took the Cooper case. That's why Larry thought outside the box and got Tom K and and you know did did all this stuff because Larry's not the typical just by the book guy. Larry Larry's Larry's different as an FBI agent. If any kept one, it would have been Himmelsbach. Yeah, let me just briefly tell people because this, this seems to be a misnomer that keeps being repeated in the vortex. So Himmelsbach was never a Norjack case agent. He never was a case agent on the D.B. Cooper case. It was never his case. Himmelsbach was a Portland special agent. Himmelsbach was never even an assistant special agent in charge. He was never he was never special agent in charge. Himmelsbach was a, a grunt, basically, okay, who for whatever reason took a particular interest in the Cooper case, but was never a case agent, okay? So, his involvement really was a lot about self-promotion. Okay. Himmelsbach liked to be on TV. Himmelsbach liked, liked to be on the news. I'm not faulting him for that, but, but um, there is a document. And I wish that I could, wish I could find that. Actually, maybe I can find that and put it up here. Uh, I think that, uh, let's see, there is a document somewhere where, Oh man, where is it? Where it lists all the interviews that uh, that were given uh, by uh, by Himmelsbach. The FBI were actually uh, the, the FBI were actually cognizant of the fact that that, that Himmelsbach was uh, more, maybe more involved than he should have been about about you know what here it is. Yeah, let me. This is actually about Himmelsbach. This is all the interviews. The FBI was like, hey. This guy is, Himmelsbach's giving a lot of interviews. Let's kind of rein these interviews in. So the FBI were aware that Himmelsbach liked to be on TV a lot. 
And so uh, they they uh, they put this up here. Let me. So here is Himmelsbach's uh, media appearances. It says here, uh, Himmelsbach made separate tapes and had separate interviews with the following newspapers and TV stations on the fifth on the fifth anniversary. This is so seventy six. So Himmelsbach did interviews with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eleven newspapers, four TV stations, and that looks like. 16 radio stations. So Himmelsbach did that much media stories. So Himmelsbach was never a case agent. He also, Himmelsbach seemed to take it upon himself to really denigrate Cooper, which again, look folks, Cooper was Cooper was an asshole. There's no doubt about it. Cooper deserved denigration. He wasn't, he was not a good guy, but Hemi was funny. I mean, there's you know, sleazy, rotten crook, dirty scoundrel, Dick Rascal, I think, was one of them. He had all these, every time every time Himmelsbach did a story on Cooper, he always had to uh, embellish, he always had to have these these phrases for Cooper. It was always funny. Yeah, Ralph's froze to death theory is is, uh, is special. I, I wish I could uh, wish I could find that. I made a I made an image one time. Yeah. Yeah, Ralph thought Ralph was telling the media that 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 Cooper may have frozen to death on the way to the ground. That's not even possible. He's like, oh, he froze on his way to the ground, like he just froze solid, like a brick. You know, it's just said so no. Yeah, that's right. When we went, Nikki, yeah, when we went to uh, Himmelsbach's house, we went. Nikki, myself, and Chris Cunningham, Chris Brower, Dave Feudman, uh, we all went to. Uh, it was like the A team. We all piled in a van and drove to uh, Himmelsbach's grandson's house, who was able to show us all these, all these original documents. I mean, I got, I have so many. I have so many scans of uh, unredacted documents that are going to end up in my book uh, just, from, just from that trip. So pretty cool. Based on the crew, was Cooper monitoring his, monitoring his location from the windows of the aircraft? Don't know as far as like after, right? Don't know, um, you know, what Cooper was up to after, uh, I mean, after, after, he sent Tina to, after, he sent, after he sent Tina to the front, which was right at about 30 minutes before he jumped. We don't know uh, what uh, what Cooper was up to. He may have been looking out the window for sure. I mean, the lights were off in the cabin. Um, remember, so the last thing he had Tina do was turn the lights out. He told her, he said, go forward, close the curtain between first class and poor seats um, and turn the lights off. So she, she complied with that. So the lights were off when he jumped and for about 30 minutes. So Possibly that's to adjust, have his eyes adjust. Uh, possibly that's to keep maybe, maybe chase planes from seeing him jump out. Uh, maybe that was to be able to look out the window and see better. So whatever that was, Cooper did tell, did tell her to turn the lights off. Um, it's kind of a misnomer that he had the lights off you know, while they were on the ground in Seattle. That's just not true. As you can see in this photograph behind me, those lights are on. Anything else interesting to share? Well, if you watch my most recent video about Donald Sylvester Murphy, I find that to be particularly fascinating. I think that's a good story. Let's see. Will we ever know? Um, yeah. yeah, I think so. I think that whenever the evidence, at some point, the DNA, the, the Cooper evidence is going to be turned over to the Smithsonian, okay? It's going to become an archive. It's going to, it's going to become a piece of archive evidence. 
Now, when something becomes a piece of archived evidence, it allows that to be tested by, you know, scientific groups, right? You, know, you can request uh, to have access to it for science, right? So I do think that eventually, at some point, whenever the... So Cooper cut the shroud lines. We famously know this, that Cooper opened one of the reserve parachutes and cut the shroud lines off and used those shroud lines to wrap his money bag and to tie the cord, tie, tie this, everything to his body. Now, when Cooper is gripping those shroud lines, Cooper is going to be holding on very tightly to, you know, when he's, when he's cutting through that, it's not easy to cut through them shroud lines with a pocket knife, right? So he's grabbing the shroud lines with his hand. He's cutting. So the, there are pieces that he, you know, cut off and then left, right? So we have all those in evidence. And those have never been tested for DNA. Now, his skin cells, absolutely. If you grab onto something, and especially if it's rubbing against you, you're going to leave skin cells on there. And um, DNA now is so good, all you need is two or three skin cells. That's it um, to do DNA. So I do think that when the parachutes make their way to the Smithsonian as archive objects, there will be DNA labs who can request access and possibly can you know, suck DNA off of those shroud lines. And I think that that would be a really good, and those aren't things that, that are, you know, it's not like the tie that had been passed around like a joint at a frat party, you know, between FBI agents and offices. And the, the tie is so contaminated. I don't trust any DNA from the tie. And neither does the FBI. Larry Carr just didn't, Larry Carr's like, you know, Larry Carr told me that he talked pri you know, privately, that, you know, he talked to the people at the DNA, the, the DNA lab at the time. And they were like, that tie is, nah. You know, it's just not, not, not really going to happen. So I do think the shroud lines are probably because nobody's really been messing with those. Those have been spent in a box for 50, 52 years or whatever that I, I think that those are going to have good evidence on them. I think that that would be a good. So I do think that we will be able to eventually find out because it's going to be like the Golden State Killer, how we're going to get a DNA profile that we can plug into like Ancestry.com or somewhere like that and kind of like uh, back channel it you know, to be able to find out who at least, you know, we, we might could find a third cousin or a second cousin on Ancestry.com or whatever, right? And then we'd be able to like reverse engineer it and kind of go from there and figure out maybe who this person was related to. And, you know, I mean, I guess like, you know, if you found out that you know, this person, you know, Ted Braden's second cousin or something, right? And you had a hit, you go, well, that's pretty good evidence that Ted Braden, for example, was Cooper, right? Um, so I do think that, I do think it's going to be solved eventually. And I think it's going to be done uh, through DNA, through the shroud lines. Have, have there been any places found to work with or manufacture titanium antimony? Yes. The only place that we know of, or there's two really, but the only place that we really know of is, okay, you mean besides Rim Crew? Yeah, I was going to say Rim Crew is the obvious one. Um, there is one patent um, from an electronics company called Sprague Electronics from 1969 maybe. Uh, they were a Boston electronics company. Uh, and it was also a thing that never was made. It was like a thing that was like a lab creation. That was a, it was a component for something. I forget what it is. Maybe Nikki remembers, but it was a component uh, for something that, that had, that had titanium antimony. But of course now, you know, we've got Captain Coldwater, Tom K, uh, saying that maybe it was calcium and not antimony. Problem is those three titanium antimony particles, we can't find them on the tie. So Tom can't 
find them to look at them and really make sure and, and, and run better testing on it to, to say whether it is or isn't titanium antimony. So it could be titanium calcium, but there really is not a lot of stuff that had, there, were, there, weren't, well, there were no alloys ever that had calcium and titanium on them. So if it is an alloy, that's the thing, we need to look and see if it's an alloy or not. If it is an alloy, then it is going to be titanium antimony. And I've said for a while that whether Milton Vordal is Cooper or not, I don't, I don't know. But I do think that if that is titanium antimony, then I think that if we ever can, can conclusively show that that is titanium antimony, I do believe that's a good sign that at least if it's not rim crew people, that it is Vordal adjacent, I, I would say. Because Vordal literally is Mr. Titanium Antimony. He's like, he has more patents on titanium antimony than anybody else ever. It was kind of a specialty thing that he could do. It's almost like making a special pie or something, right? I mean, this was like his titanium antimony was like something he just knew how to do. And nobody else really knew how to do it. It was kind of a hard thing to do. Um, so remember, if Vordal ends up at Timet, which is Titanium Metals Corporation of America, in 71, that's where Vordal's working. And uh, they're all fired, all 380 or whatever it was of the factory workers who worked with titanium at Timet were all fired in August of 71. So three months before the hijacking. So even though Vordal doesn't have any patents specifically stating that he was messing with titanium antimony while at time, while he was at Timet, which is in Henderson, Nevada, not Pittsburgh, but we, there's no evidence he was working with titanium antimony there. But just because he was there doesn't mean that, I mean, just because there's no uh, patents that reference it doesn't mean that he wasn't still messing around with it or just doing something. So if it's not Vordal, it could definitely be somebody else who worked in that lab, Timet. Plus Timet, really, I like them more than Rimcrew because Rimcrew is Pittsburgh and Timet was in, in Henderson, Nevada which is certainly closer to the Pacific Northwest than Pittsburgh. And we know from looking at the other copycats that they never went too far. They would go far enough away to hijack to where they wouldn't be recognized in the airport by somebody by chance, but not out of their region. For example, McCoy was from Utah and he hijacked in Denver, so that's still in the West, right? Uh, McNally was from Detroit. And he went and hijacked in St. Louis. So that's still the Midwest, right? It's far enough away. Point was living in Denver at the time. And he hijacks in Las Vegas. So they're hijacking in the same sort of region of the country, but not too close. So Henderson, Nevada is actually a pretty good distance. It's really that sweet spot, about 500 miles away. Um, so I do think that Timet is a probably a better... Is I mean, and again... I've not seen any evidence of layoffs at Rim Crew either. We, but we know that everybody was fired at Timet, right? So if we're looking for the, the, the cliche titanium worker with a pink slip in his hand, as Eric likes to say, I think that Timets are a better option for that than, 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 Rim, than, than uh, Rim Crew, just because there's no evidence Rim Crew was fired over there. And also the location, it's Pittsburgh, it's the other side of the country. So I'm, saying, I'm not saying Cooper couldn't have been from the other side of the country, but I don't looking at how the copycats, they wanted to be close enough to where they could get home in a single day of travel, I think. I think that's important, you know. So anyway, uh, we're right at two hours now. So uh, if anybody doesn't have any more, any last questions, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I'm losing my voice, but um, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. 
And it was fun to just filibuster and just chat about Cooper for two hours. I can talk about this all the time. Anyway, so that's it for tonight, guys. And uh, I will be talking to you guys again soon. And it was fun. Bye.